0: it's Fern here popping in quickly before the show because I really want to hear from you I am forever grateful to you every single time you press play on an episode of happy place and this show really is for you so in the interest of doing more stuff that you love and less of the stuff you're not bothered by I would love it if you took a couple of minutes to fill out a little survey for me the link will be in the show notes your input on the content and the format and the guests and all those types of things is so important to help me and the Happy Place team shape the future of Happy Place. So just click on the link in the show notes to share all your thoughts and musings. I appreciate you loads. Hello and welcome to Happy Place, the show that helps you rip up society's rulebook so you can find your own brand of happiness. I'm Fern Cotton and today I'm chatting to drag queen Bimini Bon Boulash.
1: I tried my hardest to do the things that were kind of societal expectations of me and it just made me feel so unhappy. And when I started living for myself and and kind of rejecting those ideas, that's when I found happiness within myself. And that's ultimately what we want to strive for. We want to be happy within because then that radiates to other people and you can then be open and loving and accepting of everyone.
0: Bimini was catapulted into the public conscience as a contestant on Series 2 of RuPaul's Drag Race UK. There were the iconic fashion moments, the self-deprecating vegan gags and some incredible death drops, of course. But... It was their warm and humble conversation about being non-binary with fellow Queen Ginny Lemon that cemented their position in the nation's hearts. Bimini was living their best book tour life in a Liverpool hotel room when we connected up last week. They've been travelling the country with their new book, Release the Beast, which they wrote in the hope that others will come to find the confidence to shake off restrictive societal norms too. Okay, are you ready, you beauties? Let's do it. Here's the show. Bimini how are you? I'm good how are you? I'm great first up
1: congratulations on your Attitude Award that was a moment. Thank you yeah I know it really was because in my speech I spoke about um it took me a lot of time to kind of find style and stuff and I think style is something that you can really utilize um, not even just as a queer person, as a person in general, anyone can use fashion in a certain way. And I've definitely gone through a lot of styles. I always say that I'm like Madonna. I've reinvented myself so many times.
0: <laughs> it's no bad thing. I can't even look at pictures of myself, which are horrendously easily Googleable. Um, in my <laughs> 20s. It's, it's such a shit show. I'm not I even know. going there.
1: <laughs> it's true i mean i look back at photos of myself and i think like, what the hell was going on there but we learn <laughs> we move the thing is a lot of the yes. times fashion is, is it changes so much and so rapidly and if you kind of stay i remember being a teenager and like trying to be on trend as much as possible and sometimes I look back and think what the hell was I doing like it looked awful
0: <laughs> oh my god I was ha- I was trying to do that but I was doing like the Wembley market version of because yeah. it was like two quid for a top so it was like
1: well, oh I, when I was a teenager it was the time that the only way is Essex come out so I blame that for a lot of my mishaps
0: <laughs> you can <laughs> you absolutely can I went through an Avril Levine phase so I'm just blaming Avril I, I couldn't skateboard but I was doing that it's like no no that's no coming no back that's coming no back. I can't (laughs) actually I did hear that 90s eyebrows are coming back which I'm very happy about because mine haven't regrown properly so (laughs) fab. um another
1: congratulations on your gorgeous shiny book thank you very much that was um once I got to the end of it it was like such I felt like such a relief in a moment and it was something that like it kind of came about as Drag Race was airing so someone at Penguin reached out to me and said we'd love you to kind of discuss writing a book and I was like am I ready to write a book right now like I studied a degree in journalism so I've always kind of enjoyed writing but um I was like am I gonna write a book now I was like I can't write memoirs like that's that'll come in 20 years or 30 years like that's (laughs) that's that's when all the sordid details come out but (laughs) (laughs) this one was more like I wanted to kind of reflect on kind of anecdotes of what's happened in my life and and kind of just get my ideas and my weird brain onto a bit of paper and actually I found it
0: very therapeutic. Mm, I bet. I mean, I've definitely had the same with writing books. It is, there's such a catharsis in getting it out of your head and actually seeing something on paper. And sometimes you go, oh, that's how I feel because you hadn't actually taken the time to process it. It's a really extraordinary um, turn of events, writing a book. And and, and you get the sense of that reading Release the Beast because there's so many subjects that you cover. And I get well you kind of explicitly say the impetus behind this book or certainly one of them was that you know sort of traditionally self help books haven't felt like they've been aimed at you and you wanted to to rectify that I think a
1: lot of the time self help books can be quite toxic as much as they don't want to be they're not meant to be that but like a lot of the times people will feed into those books and then if they do something wrong they beat themselves up or they feel really bad about it and this was kind of the ante of that i wanted i didn't want it to necessarily be a self help book i wanted it to be kind of reflecting on my life and knowing that you can mess up we are human there is no no such thing as perfection the issue with striving for such thing as perfection is going to make you mess up because we don't, there's no such thing. So I think just being able to learn that and kind of understand that, that's kind of what I wanted to reflect with the book.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree because, you know, there's always a fine line. And I guess I try and strike it in my own work where you don't want to end up landing in the sort of, self-improvement thing because what is that you know exactly as as soon as we start thinking that there's this room where we have to improve and get better that's endless you I don't think you ever reach a point where you go and now I am improved
1: and I am a complete human that's never going to happen yeah I think we we as humans naturally grow well hopefully evolve and and I think the the beauty in the world that we live in is you can forever keep learning and I think that's something that I will always want to try and cherish is like this innate need to be curious and and learn things and find things out and I'm very I would like to say I'm very open to everything and, and listening to people's points of view and I feel like even with my book some of the things that I talk about I'd love people to come at me with not critiques, but like conversations about it and like have have those discussions and and move forward. Because I believe that the, the only way we can actually move forward as a whole collective consciousness is if we come together and unify and discuss and talk rather than attack and intimidate, which I think you see a lot, it happens quite a lot. And especially it's something which I studied in journalism That kind of upsets me. And I'm not saying all British media is like it, but there is a lot of kind of toxicity within British media that you see targeting women, targeting minorities. And it's quite horrible to see that happen. And I think like there's a there's a lot of discussions that need to be around that that need to be had to talk about that and how we tackle it.
0: Yeah, it's why I very much enjoyed reading your book because, you know, as curious as I am and I try and cover as many differing subjects as I can on the podcast, there is always something to learn. And I can only go on my own personal experience when I'm talking to my own audience. So I want to bring different people in with different life experiences to sit and to listen and to learn. And, you know, as I said, that's why I like or reading any book. So I love getting into bed and just reading someone else's story. And, and that's hugely reflected in your book because it's full of personal anecdote. But also there were some real key moments in your series of Drag Race. You know, one of them you write about in the book. And that is a really beautiful and emotional conversation that you have with Ginny Lemon around being non-binary and for a lot of people watching that show, that might've been the first time yeah. they'd heard of that subject talked about in such a way. Um, and if not, it was certainly a very raw and vulnerable way to talk about your own life. How how did it feel watching that back?
1: Watching it back, we were kind of told beforehand that it was gonna happen. A lot of the time with, with I think, I don't know all reality, this was the first time i had done TV, but with that particular episode, they called us up and was like, just so you know, this conversation is going to come out and just be prepared. So obviously we were kind of like, it was the first time I'd really seen myself openly discuss it with someone. I feel like the scene that I've come up on, the idea kind of about being kind of gender non-conforming or kind of not conforming to the typical standards is just kind of innate within everyone. So to have that discussion on such a massive platform, it was incredible. And I think the messages I received were, amazing i was worried there was going to be like a backlash i worried that people were going to be not understanding of it but i think the way that i put it across was in such a simple way that people kind of clicked and was like oh that makes sense you can't just put people in two boxes like we are humans we all have different experiences And we all have different feelings and we are complex and it would be boring if we weren't. (laughs) It would be be so boring. (laughs) Yeah, if everyone was the same, it would just be so boring. So I think it was it was incredible that we got to have that moment. I think what people resonated with was that it was vulnerable. And like you said, it was war and it was two people just discussing their experiences. A lot of the times when you hear topics around things like gender, there are normally people kind of debating it, or there's one side saying it exists, one side saying it doesn't exist. So to just hear two people talking about how they feel, because growing up, like, I tried my hardest to do the things that were kind of societal expectations of me, and it just made me feel so unhappy. And when I started living for myself and and kind of rejecting those ideas that's that's when i found happiness within myself and that's ultimately what we want to strive for we want to we want to be happy within because then that radiates to other people and you can then be open and loving and accepting of everyone the the funny thing as well with with non-binary is like for me it's like what that means is rejecting the kind of ideas of what has been passed down to us when it comes to those gender ideals so It's the rejection of labels, but then by saying that non-binary becomes a label, (laughs) it's just a minefield. But it's 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 for everyone, and I think what I what I found so amazing was so many people messaged me and was like, people in their like sixties who were like, that's the first time I've heard that, and that's how I felt all my life. And thank you so much for putting that into words, like. I, I honestly think if, if everyone was just open and accepting and let people just live themselves as human, we would be so much better off and so much happier.
0: Yes, we would. Well, like, like you said in that conversation on the telly, it's not for anyone else to decipher what you feel and, and what you want to, you know, if you want to use a label or not, That yeah. that's not for anyone else. In no other part of life would someone else have that say and it, it's not appropriate. And I think that was massively empowering. And In the book, you go back to absolute basics on this topic, which I really, really enjoyed reading. And you talk about the difference between when we're talking about sex and when we're talking about gender, which might seem obvious, but it's actually not. It's, you need to make that proper distinction to then have a decent discussion, conversation, or just to have open ears and listen. And I think they obviously do get conflated. People don't know the true difference between the two.
1: Yeah, totally. They do. And I feel like, Gender is constructed in societies as soon as you're kind of born, those gender things become constrained. So you get either pink or blue as soon as you're born. Yeah. So that's automatically that's what is assigned to you so that stems all the way through society sex is obviously your biological anatomy how you're born but gender is what exists around us gender is what breaks people up in work gender is what is is stopping people getting equal pay gender is the, the restriction of that it's not sex that's doing that it's it's this idea of what gender is and I think if people kind of understood that a bit more and the, the confusion of the two is is very easy to do obviously but there is a definite difference and i do i uh, do discuss that in the book and with the book i didn't want it to be so heavily theoretical i wanted it to be my experiences but with a bit of theory behind it i wanted it to be it have have the references there but i also did want it to be my own personal experience that people can relate to if they do and if they do that's amazing i obviously did I've started my book tour and it's been incredible. The first night had, I think, over 500 people came and we had the conversation. And afterwards I was doing book signings and people were saying like, thank you so much for being open. And it's just overwhelming to hear it from, from people because my little conversation has sparked with with Ginny. And it's not the first time this conversation has been had, but it's the first time where I, I feel like it's it's come from an authentic place where there wasn't an attack or an agenda. and I also, like you'll see in the book, like a lot of the people that have inspired me were kind of gender non-conformists mm. in, in in pop culture, people like Bowie and, and yeah. Prince. And like, I feel like they kind of not got a free pass, but they were just seen as, because they were, they were viewed in society as heterosexual, they weren't seen as queer. They were kind of being like, oh, they're just experimental. But yeah. when it's actually comes to someone that is queer, who is doing that it kind of get you get shame and you feel guilt for that and it's again it's the art of being it's the art of being queer you've already failed at what society expects of you because you don't follow the the standard route so that's why we're not afraid to experiment that's why i think we're not afraid to kind of mess up
0: yeah it's such an important conversation because you know even listening to you talk there that those gender standards run so deep because it even moves into sort of emotional territory like if you look at Sort of the masculine and the feminine and the stereotypes yep. there of like you mustn't show emotion or you know sometimes femininity is is synonymous with a, a weakness or a vulnerability which we need to sort of abolish all of that and yep. accept there is a fluidity and that there totally. is a mix and without that we're just confining ourselves yeah you know, that's constricting f- for for everybody I, I really I really also enjoyed in the book because you know as you said you've mixed. Your own personal anecdote with also a sort of a didactic element so that everybody can learn and listen if that's something mm-hmm. that they need to do. And you mentioned um, obviously there's so much pressure when we're looking at mental health for non-binary and trans people because yeah. of what the outside world throws at them, like, like you've just sort of yeah. suggested. And one of those reasons might be due to dysphoria. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so the idea of being gender dysphoric is kind of when you look at yourself and you don't see yourself as the way that you feel internally. So your external doesn't match the internal. And that doesn't just go with gender. I feel like there's so much dysphoria. People have body dysphoria. People don't see themselves in a certain way. That that links to a lot of where people become very vulnerable. And I think what I've experienced over the years as well, I've had all of that. Like I have felt very dysphoric. I'm in a very happy place now because I feel like I'm, I've accepted who I am and I've accepted I'm just doing what I want to do, regardless of what society expects of me. I am very. I feel like I'm very lucky because I've come up on a scene that nourished that. And also I came off the back of Drag Race and it's given me a platform and people have have resonated to me. So that's given me confidence. But I understand my privilege in that position and not everyone has that. But I will always keep the conversation going because if I was... 13 14 and i was really trying to conform and fit into school and and do the things that were masculine or told that i had to do if i had someone more not just me more queer people invisible visible queer people and it's happening i was at the attitude awards recently and there were so many queer people that were getting awards and we have people in in mainstream like Rylan and Nick Grimshaw, who have been around for many years, who are amazing role models to look up to. And we've also now like Billy Porter, who's an incredible black man, and he is talking about his his living with HIV and getting that stigma out there and, and erasing that stigma and detaching that. And I think there's so much progress happening and we need to keep pushing forward, but there is still a minority that is trying to kind of stop that happening, which is very, very sad. And I do think love will always prevail, I hope. I've always felt like I've always had that view and sometimes you could be naive with it and we want the world to be singing kumbaya and around the <laughs> campfire, but <laughs> sometimes that doesn't always happen. But mm. I hope we get to a place and I feel like we are moving forward uh, socially and I hope we can keep up with that politically as well.
0: I think so, because so it's been interesting doing the podcast on varying subject matters that we've covered one of the the main roots that that keep coming up is this sense of belonging and if you don't have that in your formative years it's so difficult it's so difficult to grow into the person you know you want to be and it's so difficult to yeah to move through the world feeling confident and feeling happy, like basic things, if you don't feel a sense of belonging. And it's a given that some people will have that more easily than others. And as you've said, visibility in all communities is so key. So people have role models and don't feel alone and don't feel ostracized. And you know, you've know, you just spoken about a period of your life where you didn't feel like you belonged and you did have to conform to some extent to fit in because you had so much going on mentally with, you know, who you wanted to be and and knowing that path you wanted to take. And that, you know, you talk about this in the book that led to drug addiction for you at one point in your life to, Mm -hmm. I guess, it was
1: a coping mechanism at the time. Definitely. I think when I was a teenager, like I started kind of smoking weed and I had good friends around me, but I was also kind of ridiculed by a lot of people around where I was from and I was lucky that the friends that I had were very supportive of me I wasn't very out then but people would still kind of give me well bully I guess like they would have homophobic slurs and yeah I've heard everything basically so you do take that on like there's only so much you can take and it chips away at you and it chips away at you and it kind of dims your light and they people try to Shut people down that are different, or try to try to dim that. And I, I think it's difficult when you're a teenager. D- being a teenager is one of the hardest. So times. hard. I wouldn't want to go back. No, no way. <laughs> I would not want to go back. And like I think it's I, I don't know. I, I it's it's really sad when you hear about the increase right now within the trans community that are being bullied at school for for being themselves, and also more homophobic attacks are happening in, in London as well and that breaks my heart because when I first moved to London I felt like I was free, I felt like I'd come from a smaller town that wasn't as accepting as me to a big city that where well, I could be whoever I want to be and I grew up reading fashion magazines and seeing and I say, I think I, I do talk about this in the book, like I read these fashion magazines and saw these these beautiful androgynous looking models and then when I was trying to showcase that in normal life I would be ridiculed and it was kind of for me I was like what am I doing so wrong you blame yourself you you feel guilt you feel shame you feel like you're doing something wrong and that's why I used I think such coping mechanisms to kind of Mm. let myself go and when I moved to London London can be very hedonistic if you want it to be and I did want it to be (laughs) at the time and I there were great times i had but also very dark times and i think mm. i think that's what i wanted to show in the book as well i didn't want to show because people have seen the sh- seen me from the show they've seen i've i've been very privileged and very lucky with the opportunities i've had and i'm very grateful i've been doing some of the biggest things that i've ever only ever dreamt of but there have been darker times and I want people to know that and I want people to read that and see. And it might be triggering for some people because they might have experienced something very similar. And there were moments where I didn't know if I was even going to make it through. Like you you get into such a dark place, but I have got through and I want people to know that it is possible. You can get there.
0: Yeah, and that that's so important to have a story where... You show that recovery is possible. You show that self-acceptance is possible. I think it's a really interesting combination to always show the dark and the light in stories. I I, I definitely try to to do the same because... We can all look on Instagram and see a, a perfect painted picture of perfection and how success looks and a shiny world looks. And we need the darkness to balance it out and to sort of show the humanness. Because it's not it's it's never that easy to get no. to a place <laughs> of success or whatever. There's always a bit of suffering along the way.
1: Roland Keaton was right. Life is a roller coaster and It's a bloody roller coaster. <laughs>
0: yeah, going back to you talking about being a teenager, I was thinking that, you know, because obviously you're a lot younger than me but we you know we had our teen life without this insane bombardment of social media and I really worry for kids today especially kids that might already align with being non-binary or trans or are just trying to work it out and are feeling a sense of confusion and how that world is impacting them that I find very
1: worrying and troubling I think, yeah, what I saw something the other day, which really did surprise me, um, I'm all for doing things that make you feel better. So I'm very pro using tools, whether that be if you wanted to use surgery to, to enhance you, to make you feel better. If you're doing that as for you, then that's great. But I saw something the other day where it was like Botox and fillers banned for under 18s. And I was like, <laughs> what? So under 18s are getting stuff like that. And I'm like, that's a product of this side of social media that's quite toxic, I think, because the beauty standards are so unrealistic. Pretty much everything is edited. But that also, we say, that we blame social media and say, oh, people are editing and putting filters on their pictures. But the fashion magazines I read, no one looked like that either. No, so, it, that's been happening so for years. Always, exactly there's always been a level of kind of unrealistic beauty standards and i really love when i see posts from from people that are just like not editing their photos people that show their bodies in all different ways and and show that you it's okay like we can smooth it out on an app but actually this is what it looks like and I think people need to take Instagram and social media kind of with a pinch of salt, as difficult as it can be, because I think there is a really great positive side to it. We can connect with a wider range of audiences. We can find people that are like us all around the world. But I also think there is that kind of darker side where the editing and people make themselves look a bit skinnier or anything like that and if that if that's a form of dysphoria because you're yes. you're creating something you're doing something to make yourself look different to what you actually look like and i remember i'm going through a phase of really editing my pictures and then sometimes when I'll, I'll do a photo shoot and then you'll see that the photos are unedited and it still looks lovely and i'm like okay i it's it's fine like you don't have to i think Everyone just kind of gets in their mind a bit about it because everyone wants to strive for that perfection, which, again, doesn't exist. No,
0: it doesn't. And even if you can make it like it exists, it doesn't in your real life anyway. So it's almost a pointless endeavour. But (laughs) I think you've said something very important there because, you know, I I can be much too quick to look at the negatives of social media, especially when it comes to younger people. But you're right, especially during the pandemic social media was perhaps the only tool young people had who were curious, who were experimenting, who were perhaps, I mean, God bless them if they decided to come out during a pandemic. I can't imagine how hard that was, but at least they had a sense of community and could follow people who made them feel less alone. Like that is a beautiful positive and I, I should not underestimate that. There's
1: definitely that.
0: I know because actually, you know, in the book, you say like during the pandemic, there was this, obviously like, huge problem for nightlife in general, but for queer spaces, yeah. I mean, w- will will they come back to life? I mean, some of them already are, some of them are still working out if they can. And that's not just a case of, oh, we can't go out. This is a case of young people finding their community, finding their tribe, feeling then, not only finding a, a group of people that are like-minded, but then having the confidence to say to the people outside of that community, this is who I am. So yep. without those
1: spaces, that is such a huge problem. They are. And those spaces are some of the most fun. I'm sure you've come oh, to. Oh, I a, know. You, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> I know. Like they are the most fun place I and they're know. inclusive and they're for everyone. And that's the thing that's the most sad thing is when I first moved to London, there was a lot of nightlife. There was so much going on. And since 2010, we've actually lost 50% of these venues within London. And these spaces are incredibly important. Important. because also the thing that the, the thing that we don't often have and there are definitely people doing it there's like the outside project and there are in london and there are, are people that are working for kind of a community-based center for lgbtq plus because of the, a lot of the times and this is why there is i think this is why i particularly got caught up as well in hedonism is because when you come to london there aren't actually many other spaces that are just for lgbtq plus people so you go to these bars and then with bars there's alcohol and then there's the partying and then there's that cycle there because there aren't an abundance of places for people to go and not everyone does want to go to a bar and drink so people can get lonely and isolated and what's so important about these venues though is if i hadn't had those when i first moved to london i wouldn't have been in able to see people like me. Because where I'm from, there was was a, a, a gay bar, but it didn't really, the people in it weren't people that I saw as a reflection of who I was. And there was still judgment within it. And that's the saddest thing as well within the community that there's judgment. But these spaces are incredibly crucial and incredibly important. And what I think is quite sad a lot of the time is you, and I, like I said, they're inclusive and they are for everyone. But a lot of the times like, I've seen online where people say about kind of like straight people coming to these spaces and like taking over and being quite like, not in your face, I don't mean that, but like touchy, touchy, grabby, grabby with like the artists. And it's fine. These people can come to these spaces, but they can also go to any other space. So yeah. these spaces are so crucial and sacred for us. And people, I think people just need to kind of have that level of respect when yeah. they come to them as well. And people expect that when they go to somewhere, they want to be respected. So I think it just comes down to that. And like, everyone can come to these spaces, but also just be conscious that these spaces are for queer people to thrive and flourish and find themselves and everyone is welcome. But remember that some of these people aren't welcome in other spaces. So that's why we have these.
0: Yeah, they're sacred. I, I completely agree, and and it's really lovely. Like you know, like I was reading in your book about the the more sort of you know non-alcoholic or sober spaces that are more daytime based um, for queer people, and and the importance there. And that's lovely to hear that that's happening more. So it's, it's yeah. a really positive thing. And I I wanna talk about that moment when you first came to London and you started to grow in confidence and you that's where you started sort of dabbling in drag properly for the first time. But you said yeah. you even felt a level of judgment from the community because there were maybe sort of unwritten rules as to what you know, how you do it. And and that was,
1: you know, a, a bit of a shock to you. Queer people have been judged all of their lives, so then they start judging other people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it comes down to that. And I think um, when I first moved to London, I went out and I was just playing around. I was like experimenting. I remember someone saying to me at room service, which is no longer a night, but that was Jody Harsh, one of Jodie Harsh's many successful nights, um, saying to me what I was doing wasn't drag. And at the time, I took that on and was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not this. I'm not this. So I didn't do it for ages. I kind of stopped after that because I was like, OK, well, there's obviously like people that... Doing it, I'm. I'm finishing my degree. I'm going to go traveling, do all of that. And then when I came back, I saw people performing, and I was like, "This is what I want to do." Like, this is this is what I want to do. So I started working towards that. And I would say I first started properly in 2017 performing. It wasn't until like the end of 2018 that I started really getting paid for it and and taking it seriously. Like I was doing a lot of, of free work or just popping up now and then. I wasn't taking it as seriously as I am now. But even then there was a level of judgment. I felt like there was still people judging me because the scene, there's so many people in the scene. There's people that have been around for so long. And when they see new people coming up, I kind of guess it's like a defense thing. They don't, they don't yes, want.
0: You're, you're a threat.
1: <laughs> it's a threat. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. it's a shame because we should all be coming. We should all be welcoming of everyone. And I think, if there's any positive from Drag Race is that it's opened the minds of so many more people to this world and it has become a bit more mainstream. But I think what people that are fans of the show need to realise is the struggle of the people that have got us to this position now. And we stand on the shoulders of all of these greats that have come before us that fought for the rights for me to be able to do this and even have this conversation with you right now in in a, such an incredible podcast so thank you for having me to have this discussion because it's it's an amazing space to talk about this and i think we need to always be respectful of that and i think people also need to understand that drag is political and drag is an act of defiance and it goes against what society expects and it's inclusive it's fun it's a piss take it's mocking standards of beauty it's mocking Politics. It's mocking the government. It's mocking all of these things, and it it invites people in to have a laugh and let go and have fun. And we've always got to remember the essence of where it came from.
0: Yeah, it's it's such a such an important point because we can all get so drawn into the beauty of it, the extravagance of it, yep. the performative element, without thinking about. There's always a, a deeper level. There's always a sub level where, as you say, you know, people have struggled for years or been massively unaccepted, you know, going back only maybe sort of 20, 30 years, the conversation has ramped up hugely and there's still a long way to go. But, you know, this show has, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race has, has given way and so much space and um and just a chance for us all to really honour it and learn about it. And that's what's really exciting. Moving back to perhaps a more sort of shallow level of it, I do sit there watching, thinking like I'm fixated and I'm almost envious because you (laughs) see this moment, this like switch where the makeup's on, the amazing outfit comes on and all of you embody that and there's a new confidence and there's a new persona. And I often, especially in social situations, you know, I used to drink loads, so I didn't really care about this sort of thing, but now I'm drunk on like half a gin and tonic. And (laughs) I... I want that feeling of like becoming someone yeah. else embodying someone else and it it's such it's such an amazing sort of flick of a switch to witness, and i yeah, I guess I'm just sort of envious of it.
1: I think it comes again from what we've t- we've spoken about where um we're defying those expectations so mm. we've we've grown up repressing kind of this innate femininity if you will i don't know if it's just necessarily femininity because i don't necessarily see drag as kind of female illusion to me it isn't it's it's an extension of me so i feel like drag drag is whatever you want it to be and we also have yeah. there's drag kings there's there's drag queens there's there's people in between there's people that are kind of more not androgynous and i think it's an art form first and foremost and it's one of the best, I think, because it mixes fashion and costume and makeup and and hair and performance, and it's it's a whole package. And a lot of the times, I mean, I'm not good at all of that stuff. There are some very very talented queens and kings that will make everything themselves. And unfortunately, I can wrap a quilt around me and say, "Oh, it's inspired by Westwood," but um, <laughs> <laughs> that's about as far as it goes. But no, I think there's there's so much talent. That, that is shown mm. there and it's taking back that kind of feeling of being ridiculed and being humiliated as a young queer male or female or, or non-binary or however you identify and taking back, oh, I was going to say taking back control, but that just sounds like Donald Trump, doesn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it is because it's, pa- it's, it's a powerful statement to be making. And I think that's why I, I feel so sort of enthralled when I'm watching it. And I want to, you know, what, what, what point in your life did you first have that feeling of, oh my God, this is making me feel amazing. And like, I can stick my middle finger up to everyone that's, you know, ever given me shit before I feel powerful. And I feel like I can take myself out to a, a social space and just thrive. Like when did that first happen?
1: When I first did it, when I was about 19, we went out in Soho to a night called Gigolo, which is no longer there anymore. Either that was at shadow lounge. And that, that was the first time i did it someone did my makeup i was wearing like 20 pound wig i was wearing a the cheap like five pound dress from like the stratford market like you couldn't tell me anything i felt a million pounds and it yeah. was it was it was such an incredible feeling because you go out and it's it's i don't know if it's such as much anymore but there was like because because drag has become a lot more mainstream and accessible but there was still that mystique around it because mm. drag race in the US was taking off, but there was nothing in the UK. And there were there were the pioneers within the drag the drag scene here. So you'd go out and see people that were like were doing that. But it gives you that feeling of confidence. And I then I stopped, then I started performing again in two thousand seventeen at the Glory in East London, which is one yeah. of the best places ever. They really support all kinds of performance, not just drag. It's it's alternative cabaret. It's so much, and they're they're real legends already, like they're icon status. But they they were the first people that allowed me a space to go on stage, and I entered a competition called Lip Sync 1000. And so I did that for like a bit, and I was I was getting more confident performing. And then when I performed, I did a it was called Boylesque, um, and I did that out of drag. And I, it was awful. I was like so not confident. And it was crazy because I didn't realize that by putting everything on, it really did give me the confidence to perform. And it was, it was a a crazy mind shift because I was like, Oh, it's just, it's, it's not as, it's not as deep as that, but it really was. And I think I was, I always, I I speak about it in the book. I, I had that innate attention seeker within me when I was younger and no one could tell me again anything then when I was three years old and I was making a rotor to put the dress on at playgroup, and all the <laughs> the parents were like, "What's going on?" But I was like, wearing the dress, and I, I was so young that I didn't know it was yeah. meant to be seen as wrong, and it shouldn't be yeah. seen as wrong. But as I got a bit older and a bit more socially aware, I was like, "Oh, I can't do that." I can't like, but I was I was we were making like the pop groups. We did like hearsay. We did all of those when we were in in in, in reception and whatever and it was something that i always wanted to be and then as i got a bit older i realized i thought that dream was not going to happen and then drag has allowed me now to kind of really express myself and go for it and realize that there are no there are no things i can't do i if i want to put my mind to something i can do anything so i think yeah. I, that's ultimately what i want everyone to feel as well
0: yes we should all be feeling like this and i think such a big part of it like you've you know, discussed throughout today's chat is that sense of community. And You know, we've got a mutual friend in Glynn, and he obviously created Sink the Pink, which is yes. one of the... And the Hoopla Festival, which are two phenomenal, beautiful, inclusive spaces. You know, anyone can go and enjoy it. But it is... it There is so much art behind it. And yep. I think it also... It also really just proves for anybody who wants to experiment with fashion or makeup, this isn't just like... Oh, just like a frivolous thing, like just putting makeup on. It is game-changing. You know, I wouldn't yeah. want to sit... On Zoom with you now, without makeup on, and it's not because I think I shouldn't be seen without makeup. I feel like I'm in work mode. Like, yeah. okay, I'm ready. I I have a my sort of suit of armor on, and it is yeah. it is a wonderful thing that anybody who chooses so can have that that period of transformation. It's 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 empowering. I love it.
1: Glynn is someone that really changed the the drag scene in in London mm. and East London, like when they came up with with pink and that was really the that was signal pink was one of my biggest inspirations when i first got there because when i was told what i was doing wasn't drag i saw single pink and what they were doing was gender bending it was defying it was lampshade on their heads covered in feathers it was whatever you wanted it to be and to me that was what i felt like the message that resonated with me with drag was so when i started going to sing the pink that's when i was like oh my god these are my people these are the people these are the the, the tribe these are the people that i i love and and want to be around so then i did miss sing the pink in 2019 and won it so that's actually i i i always on a the pink is one of my biggest influences as well because they gave me a massive platform and i was kind of coming up on the drag circuit performing and for me to win this the Ping it really cemented me as an artist in East London to be kind of taken a bit more seriously. So I just thank Glenn to High Heavens for everything that they've done for the scene and for me.
0: Oh I love Glenn. I love I Glenn. I love Glenn. I love Glenn. <laughs> um And let's talk about language, because I wonder at what point, you know, we we're much more um, understanding now of how to use language and like reclaiming words like queer, which again is is massively liberating for everybody. But I wonder at what point did you first hear your pronouns used and and when did you did you was it instant like that's me. That's how I feel, because that's been, again, something that previous generations might not have. Had access to, or even
1: felt allowed to use. I always think whether the language, because language is always evolving, language language is always changing, and the way we use it. And and I think it's always a it's a great thing. It's a powerful thing. I I've, I often think I wonder whether the people that came before me, like Bowie, would would say that they were cause they always said that they were ne- they were in between they were never yeah. and I think maybe because language has changed like would would they have kind of rejected the idea of the pronoun for me i'm I'm kind of i feel like because I feel like i I'm very fluid like some of my family will use different pronouns i'm not it to me it's not the worst thing if someone messes up a pronoun i will be it's it's absolutely fine for other people it's very important, so I think it's just having that that respect for. For, for everyone. And I see yeah. it happening in work. So, for example, I'm working with, with my publishers and I see at the end of their emails, they have their pronouns in their, in their email. And I think that's just such a simple, effective step to make everyone in the workspace feel included. Mm. And it's little things like that that can really be game-changing for a lot of people to just feel like they're being like being seen or being heard and being accepted. Yeah,
0: again, it's that sense of belonging, isn't it? And, and you know, we can... We can do certain things to help everybody feel like they have a sense of belonging. And of course, we can do things for ourselves to ensure that we feel cemented and rooted in self-acceptance. Or if you can get there, self-love. Where are you at with self-love today?
1: Today, I had a lovely sleep in this hotel room <laughs> and I woke up feeling very fresh and I've, I've had a very busy few months. And I, so I've, I came from, before I got into performing uh, full-time as drag, I actually did a yoga retreat and I became uh, trained in yoga. So I, I was I was teaching that. And I take, I tried to take as many mindful practices that I learned from that as possible. And sometimes it's hard when you're, and I'm sure you've seen it when your, your schedule is like, wow, when is my next day off? I'm going a hundred miles per hour. Even taking five to 10 minutes a day to just, sit there, listen to a meditation or or something to just take some time for yourself is so, so important. And I think I really need to kind of include more of that with, with the schedule as well. And I think, again, it's fluid and I'm very accepting of where I am now and who I am. But sometimes I feel like I've got to take a step back and be more appreciative of everything that's going on because when you are going 100 miles per hour, and I'm I'm the type of person that's always like, I don't want to be put in a box. So when I say I don't want to be put in a box, that means I want to do music, I want to do fashion, I'm writing a <laughs> yeah, book, all of it. I'm doing everything. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm throwing myself at it. But you've you've got to take time for yourself. It's incredibly important to, to just even find five minutes a day.
0: It is. Otherwise, you start to lose the plot. I lost the plot last night because. <laughs> <laughs> I had one of those days where I did about a million things and then I forgot to go to my kids' parents evening, oh. which is quite bad. I just didn't I just didn't turn up. And I was like, Oh my god, I am pushing myself yep. so much and I'm not giving myself that space And if you don't, like the universe will show you like halt stop you're pushing it too far but it is hard because you know I love my job I feel so grateful that I get to do this every day and you do have to work and and I'm also a fidget so I like to be doing a million things but you do it's so important like you've said to find even five minutes to go I'm allowed I'm allowed I'm allowed to stop I deserve to stop and to feel good about myself so Let's talk about yoga. What is it? Is it a daily thing for you? How do you incorporate it into your busy life? It was
1: a daily thing. Now it's as and when. Right. (laughs) I've I've, I've recently just moved into a new place. And one of the things that I really wanted was to be by water because water is very calming. And I wake up now and I'm very lucky that I can look out onto uh, the river and I see water. And it's such, it just makes me feel calm first thing in the morning and i noticed a lot of the times that i don't know if you're you're the same because you say you're you're fidget i'm very much the same as yeah. that as well when i'm when i know that i've got a million things going on at once i then start doing a million things at once so i'll be in the kitchen making a cup of tea but then also trying to make this and then also like sending an email on my laptop oh, at yeah. the same time it's like the, so you end up doing a million things and then you've got to be like i'm not an octopus i need to take a step back but i only noticed that when I've not given myself the space to kind of take time for that. And I know that there's so many things coming up and I'm like, okay, I'm trying to do five things at once. But like what you what you said a minute ago as well, when the universe speaks to you, like for example, with the, with the parents evening, then you've got to take a step back and be like, okay, but there will be more. There yeah. is going to be another one. You've got yes. to always try and, you've got to try and always see that side of stuff. Recently, I was just on holiday and I was really excited for this holiday. It was like four days. I was going to Greece and afterwards I was going to Paris Fashion Week. And to me, dream come true. I have never been to Paris Fashion Week. I was going to two of my favorite designers, big shows. I was working at one of them and then I had a big dinner with one of someone that was an absolute icon of mine. I got invited to that dinner and I was so excited. And I had been going 100 miles per hour before that, but then I had that holiday in Greece. I was meant to fly from Crete to to Paris. I had a stopover in Athens, got my boarding pass in Athens. had a 40 minute changeover and my passport and my wallet got stolen at the airport. And I was stuck in Athens. And I was like, (laughs) you, what, what, I'm meant to be in Paris in like two hours. And I was like, they wouldn't let me on. I was like calling the police. I got like the police report. I was hysterical I was crying I got a message on Instagram saying oh I I saw you at the airport I was going to come over but you looked like you were not having a nice time and I was trying to I was trying to do everything I was I was calling the embassy I was like I need to get an emergency travel document basically I got the emergency travel document but not until the Monday so I missed fashion week I missed everything and I ended up having to stay in in Athens for the weekend and at first I was devastated but then I really had to take a step back yeah I had to be like okay so the universe has done this for some reason I have to accept that I'm very happy I'm very healthy I'm in a very lucky position right now yeah I've missed this opportunity but more will come and I had to really kind of get that glass half full again because it was difficult and it was like one of those things that I was just like okay so there is a reason that that's happened they're telling me something so I just spent the whole weekend eating bread in Athens so it wasn't that bad
0: absolutely (laughs) fine you've got to pick up on the signs haven't you you've got to go you know what this is a sign I've got to take heed of it otherwise I'm probably going to have to learn this lesson again although I am still gutted for you Bimini that
1: you (laughs) I I was gutted but then also I had to realize that there's there was a bigger There's worse things happening in the world than me missing fashion week. You've really got to kind of get that mental attitude when something like that happens. Otherwise, it just eats you up and you become bitter and whatever. You've really got to kind of let it go and be like, there will be more. Yeah. And there, I am very lucky and there are worse things happening. So
0: you do. You have to get the perspective. You have to do it. Otherwise, you will literally drive yourself mad, especially with a schedule like that. It's all, it's all too much. Yeah. And then let us for a moment bond over veganism. Yeah. Are you finding veganism?
1: Yeah. Well, I've been vegan for um, years now. And at the, at the beginning, it was very difficult because when I first went vegan, the cheese tasted like plastic and it was just really, really bad. Yeah. But... I, was, I I, would probably say I was way healthier back in 2015, 2016 when I first went vegan because now I can just go on Uber Eats and get Templar Satan to deliver to my door and get vegan chicken and chips, whereas before I couldn't do that.
0: So. Yeah, it was all pulses <laughs> and lentils back in the yeah, day.
1: Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> a lot healthier. But um, I'm, yeah, I've been vegan for a long time. My dad is also vegan. Obviously, I speak about that in the book. Yeah. he, He's someone that I... I look to and like obviously I'm, I'm very respectful of his his strong beliefs with it but I feel like the only way to be taken seriously is by not kind of intimidating people and having these discussions and it, that's why I try with gender as well it's, just, it's like not but like it's the way to do it with humor yeah. and humility and bringing people in because as soon as you attack someone they're not listening anymore they go on a defense yeah. and you're not you're not getting to the the core of what you need to do. So I think with vegan I like to take the piss and I've used vegan in my act and I've had people say, "Oh, that's made me stop drinking milk." And like, that's amazing, just little steps like that. The the performance in itself is is to MILF money by um by Fergie and so I I I'm dressed as a cow and I do this like speech about cow at the beginning and then I like take it off and someone comes out and covers me in oat milk. <laughs> We
0: love the oat milk. Oat milk's been the greatest saviour for all vegans.
1: What's great as well now is when you go into a coffee shop, the first thing they, well, in London mostly I've seen, they would just say, oat milk. Oh, they're, yeah, they're, always. They're, yeah, which is amazing. Love. Love yeah, Love, love a
0: barista oat milk, I do. Yeah. <laughs> how do you find <laughs> it? How, how long have you been vegan? About two years. I was vegetarian before that as it, from being a tiny kid, but... Um, and I don't know, I, I just, it was, I was really struggling to give up eggs and now I don't even think about them. And my husband's yeah. vegan as well. And, and that was a oh, big amazing. surprise because he wasn't even veggie. So he's, he's loving it. Um, but yeah, no, I I really enjoy it. It's more
1: creative. It's been more it creative now. And I think that's what's amazing. It's like, unlearn- I think I'm, I'm, I'm me- medium, mediocre cook. (laughs) I was going to say medium, mediocre. I'm all right. (laughs) I'm not the best cook. I'm not the worst cook. But what I love is going to restaurants that are uh, predominantly vegan restaurants or fully vegan restaurants and trying the the food. And I'm like, they are creating these, uh, these masterpieces and unlearning all of the, the things that they've learned beforehand about how to cook because it's not about people think you're just eating twigs and grass but you're not like <laughs> you can eat amazing food and yeah, yeah it's so yeah it's lovely it's amazing.
0: Oh, i feel really bloody hungry i need to go and eat something I know. um <laughs> what a joy talking to you i've absolutely loved talking to you today bimini what what a pleasure and thank you so much for coming on happy place good luck with the rest of your book tour and the book spreading
1: its wings and getting out there i'm thrilled for you thank you so much and thank you for having me i've always been a huge fan of you and this is such an honor to be on this with you so thank you so much for having me i'm glad you enjoyed the book and thank you for letting me speak
0: oh bimini oh i love that chat so much And you know what, Bimini? You need to keep on speaking. The world needs you. What a beautifully eloquent, curious person you are. I love that chat. Release the Beast, A Drag Queen's Guide to Life is the name of Bimini's book and it's brilliant. I loved it. A perfect balance between a little bit of theory as well as those gorgeous first person stories that really just help us all connect and understand each other so much better. Next week, I'm chatting to another incredibly kind soul. So make sure you don't miss that one by following the podcast for free wherever you're listening to this right now. Thank you so much to Bimini, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio. And of course, the biggest thank you always for you lot. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your comments. I love you dearly. We'll be right back.
1: The